Welcome to The Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles. I'm from a company called B-Squared and I'm the host of The Sendcast, the podcast for special educational needs. Each week we'll be talking about a different topic within the world of special educational needs to improve our knowledge, to provide support to professionals working in schools and to empower parents. On this week's podcast, we'll be discussing building resilience in the early years. My guest this week is Dr. Tina Ray. Tina is a consultant psychologist with over 30 years experience working with children, adults and families. As well as this podcast, B-Squared also run the virtual SEND conference and parent talks. The virtual SEND conference is a conference of schools that runs twice a year. It is a virtual conference, so the conference comes to you over the internet. We record every session. This means that you can watch the videos whenever you need to, on demand. You can purchase access to future or past events. For more information, visit www.virtualsendconference.com. And at the end of the episode, I'll be giving a discount code so you can save some money when you purchase access. If you're interested in parent talks, you can go to www.virtualsendconference.com forward slash parent talks to find out more. Now on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing resilience, how important it is and how we can help build resilience in those early years. Discussing this with me is Dr. Tina Ray, a consultant psychologist. Tina has supported children, adults and families for over 30 years. She is working as a consultant, educational and child psychologist in a range of SEBD, SEMH and mainstream contexts, including Compass Fostering, supporting foster carers, social workers and looked after children. She has held many positions in many places, including a trustee of the Nurture Group Network and is a member of the Ed Terry Board for the journal Emotional Behaviour Difficulties and for the International Journal of Nurture in Education. She has written over 100 publications. I'll be sharing some of these in the show notes at the end. Welcome to the show, Tina. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So resilience is a word that some people actually hate. Some people understand they get it and others are a bit unsure of what it actually means. I have met some people who think resilience is made up and dismiss it. I've also seen work in primary schools where they're helping children to become more resilient, talking about growth mindset and things like that. And resilience also has a lots of names. So resilience or grit, determination and various other things, but they all have a common thread, which is like coping. Coping with what's being thrown at you. But how else can we describe resilience? Well, the, the word resilience actually is, it emanates from the Latin word, which is resilio, which literally means to bounce back. So okay. from my perspective, I, can, I, I get the debate about, you know, people, people have got kind of very varied views about, about it because it's a bit like the happiness bug. You know, people kind of think it's got a bit jaded and hackneyed and they kind of think, well, what does it actually really mean? For me, it's about being able to keep going when the going gets tough and having the skills, the strengths, the inner skills and strengths to be able to do that, which don't happen by magic. I think that, you know, it's a, resilience is a product of the things that go wrong, but also the way in which we are nurtured and supported to be able to bounce back when they go wrong and problem solving and come out and come through that, that difficult time. So it, it is really about being able to keep going when things are really, really bad. I mean, the first research in this area probably was undertaken just around the time of the Second World War when when um, 
There was a lot of studies from psychologists on kids who had been in concentration camps. And why was it that some of them had managed to survive and, and, and really, you know, despite all the odds? And that was when they started to think about this concept of resilience and the fact that they were able to keep going and keep coping and keep managing, notwithstanding all the terrible things that were happening. I mean, real tragedy and real trauma there on a, on a daily basis, obviously. And I think there is this notion that there is something that some of us have, maybe some of us have this, that we're kind of born with it. We're a bit more resilient, like we're a bit less anxious. Yeah. So it's the personality thing. But I think there's also a real wealth of research out there now, particularly if you look at the work of Carol Rebich, for example, on teaching resilience and that, you know, she's actually identified seven learnable skills, which is why I think the focus in schools now has been on, you know, building resilience, teaching resilience, because we recognise that this is something, it's a, it's a bit of a gift to give to a child. If you can be resilient, then you know that even when things go wrong, you're going to be able to cope, you know. And she talks about resilience as being about being emotionally regulated, having an optimistic bias, being able to see the good in things so that you cup half full, being able to control your impulses, your behaviour. So understanding cause and effect, so that causal analysis. People who are resilient are the ones who are able to empathise with other people, understand how they're feeling and really, not not sympathy, empathy. Self-efficiency, so being able to be responsible for yourself, your actions and take control and do things independently. And another key skill that is absolutely teachable is that of reaching out. So resilience people are not the ones, resilient people are not the ones who are self-obsessed. It's not just about me. I am able to reach out and support and nurture other people in my community, in my social context. So, you know, seven really discrete learnable skills. I think that Sorry, I think that when, they, when they're talking about we don't like this concept, I mean, a lot of this comes from my perspective in, in working in the fostering world and fostering arena, which is what most of my work currently is at the moment. Um, we, we look at paperwork on kids and they might have been in six or seven different placements. And you hear a social worker saying, wow, this kid's really resilient, you know. And my response to that one is no, 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 no. That's not about resilience. That's about survival. Yeah. And that's where the debate comes in. Is it survival or is it resilience? And actually, they have this. Sometimes you've got no choice. You know, someone's packed your bags on a Friday. They brought them to school and said, don't come back to this foster placement. You're somewhere else that night. You're in respite care and then you're into another placement. That's not resilience. That's survival. But for resilience, we're talking about something else that can be taught, can be learned. And I think even for those children who've experienced that level of trauma, this is also something that they can learn, they can engage with. And and have post-traumatic growth. So I, I don't. I, I think we have to be careful about it because we don't want to be too simplistic because it happens in a context, obviously, but it's also something within and without of the child or young person. So a couple of things, as you describe in those areas, the emotions became, came in a lot. So it's your emotions and being able to support others. And I think that's where, if we think historically, the British stiff upper lip. Yeah. Is you could say that is someone, I'll just get on with it. Back in my day, I used to walk five hours to school every day. Yeah, but kind of what you're actually hearing, there's no emotion in there. So the, the stiff British upper, there's no emotion. So that's not resilience. That is not actually that good for you because you're not dealing with the emotional side. Well, what you're doing is you're... you're... Burying it. Yeah. And at the moment, you you know, what you do is if you don't recognise those difficult, complex emotions, you don't work through them, 
then you're just going to get more and more of them. And these are the people that end up with, in my view, the most significant mental health difficulties because they bottle it. You know, they're not emotional. Yep. They're not able to work through it. And I, I think that is a real example of a lack of resilience. I, I was doing a yep. radio phone-in once when I was working at University of East London and they asked me to call in to LBC, I can't remember which show it was, to be the voice of experience and knowledge on the topic of hitting children as a punishment for bad behaviour. So because there was a big debate around should we, you know, ban parents in England as they are in other countries from actually smacking their kids. So, the way you worded that sounded like you were an expert at hitting children. Clearly, I am not, no. <laughs> But what was hilarious about this, and it was quite funny, was I knew that they picked me and it was going to be like, Dr. Ray comes on and she's going to say all this kind of woolly, fluffy stuff. And then the guy that's on next after me is going to be someone who's absolutely outrageous. And of course, it's exactly what happened. And he talked about, well, when I was a kid, I remember being in the bath and my father came in and he really whipped my back till it bled and I was, I'm fine for it. I got through it. I'm a resilient person. I managed all of that. And I'm listening to this guy and I'm thinking, how can I say this diplomatically? Because actually all your narrative, your conversation, the aggression in your voice says to me that you really were damaged by this. You haven't dealt with it. You haven't worked through it. You're not emotionally literate. This was damaging. And actually what does this teach you you know, that actually, you know, you hit someone, you're you're horrible to them, you're nasty to them. What do you get back? You get back exactly the same kind of response. You teach someone you can control them by yeah. physical violence and aggression. And actually what we should be teaching kids is how to control themselves and their own responses and giving them the level of resilience they need to do that, you know. But very, very interesting just yeah. into that. But the emotional literacy aspect to, to, to being resilient is an absolute key essential. So as you sit there and you, you think about someone who's not resilient is someone who just doesn't want to try, doesn't want to do this, but you have these, the pets, you might have parents or grandparents go, oh, back and it is, it's, they're not emotional. As you said, they had that anger thrust upon them yeah. and their response to, oh, just is anger. There's no understanding. It is just, there was no understanding when someone's being hit. There's no understanding when you're just saying, oh, just get on with it or anything like that. It is, there is no understanding. And I think that part of resilience is really important is, is it comes back to reflecting on that resilience. So I, I've got through this, I've managed to deal with that or what happened There's a lot of reflect and understanding your feelings is I think is a really crucial part to resilience. Well, and I think this is so, this is the most essential thing, I think, for little children, you know, in the early years, being able to develop that emotional vocabulary, having parents and carers who actually help us label our feelings, don't dismiss them, explain to us that it's okay to feel angry, but it's what you then do with that anger, how you express it and learn how to do that in a safe way. And Parents then not also in the early years feeling frightened of displays of anger that the child might exhibit, you know, and I think that's where the emotion coaching comes in and really recognising it, not dismissing it, because there's something about negative emotions. If you bottle them, you just get more of them and there is a purpose to them. You know, when you're little and you're getting angry and frustrated because you can't do the spelling or something or you're sitting in class and you're in reception and someone's not taking turns with you in the right way and you're getting distressed about that you've got to be able to learn how to express that and to let people know in a very safe way and you can only do that 
if you've been emotion coached and if your parents have given you the emotional vocabulary to be able to do that, you know, and unfortunately for some, this is what is missing. That's where the gap is. Yeah. I think for some, it's, it's again, parents aren't always in control of their emotions, things like that. But for me is you've almost got to not hide those emotions from your children. So sometimes where there's a, a death, some people, oh, a funeral is not a place for a child. Is it really depends, and but there's emotions which are going on. They're your emotions. So there's your parents will be seeing your children will be seeing your emotions as a parent. They might help by going to funeral. Might help them understand them better. So I'm not saying either way which is right, but just saying straight blank. Oh no, children should be funerals. Is I'd completely disagree. And my daughter was at my mother-in-law's funeral when she was very young, and it was it really amazing to see her level of understanding of what was going on and even after the event. So where's granny? And it just, that whole thing, that was, I found that really enlightening. And my father-in-law who died a couple of years ago, again, going through that whole process and with my children who are older, but it's explaining how I feel as well. So I think we, we talk about modeling a lot on this podcast and it is yeah. with that emotions is your modeling. So I have got angry with my children. Yeah. And I've then had to reflect on me and go, wow, that was a bit, why am I angry? And I've actually been able to sit there and go, I should have coped with that better. I'm not angry because of them. I'm angry because of something else. And it's just over spilled onto my interaction with them. And I've gone back and apologized and talked about, I was angry. I shouldn't have done that. And explained why I'm angry. Yeah. I explained sometimes I sit there and go, I'm really tired. I, I let them, I know I'm really stressed. I'm really tired so that they know that other people feel like this mm -hmm. so that I can sit there and go, I'm really tired and it made me do this. I really haven't got any energy to support you, please. And I've even asked them to be, can you be extra good this week? Cause I've got a lot on myself mm -hmm. and, and it's, it's having that conversation. So my, my, my daughter can sit there and go, okay, so my dad isn't that perfect person. I'm definitely not. But he isn't that wonder thing, that amazing thing up on a pedestal that I can't be like because I'm this or that. It's actually letting him know that I am a person. I have feelings. I don't get things right all the time. I do make mistakes, but I apologize. And I try and make things right. I, I try and recognize when I've done that. And I try and hopefully my daughters pick up on that. Not yeah. that often. I'm sure they do. They probably do. You're modeling it, aren't you? And yeah. you probably have done that right from the word dot, you know. And I think it's important that they see that we get angry. They see that we have those difficult, uncomfortable emotions as well. But we learn how to manage them. When we talk about them, we express them. We don't bury them. And we also recognize that there's a purpose. So, you know, you, you can't cotton wool kids. And this is what in the early years is does the most damage, I think. Trying to protect them from so-called bad feelings or uncomfortable feelings is not helpful because there's a purpose to them. So I need to feel angry with myself or embarrassed or hurt or upset or ashamed if I've told lies, if I've hurt someone's feelings, if I've been unkind behind someone's back, if I've told lies or I've stolen stuff in school, you know, whatever it is, I've done that's wrong. Because that sense of feeling ashamed, feeling uncomfortable with myself, feeling angry with myself, then prompts me, it generates me into action to go and put it right. So there's a there's a purpose to this. And I think sometimes, you know, I've, I've heard parents say quite often, oh, 
I don't want them to see us arguing. I don't want them to see us, you know, getting angry with each other. I want to protect them from that. They're little. They shouldn't, you know. And I'm thinking, well, actually, I don't know anyone who's able to do that full stop. I've never met a perfect person in my life. I don't know what they look like. But the other thing is that actually, how do you know how to manage a situation when you don't agree with someone? How do you know how to have a good argument? How do you know how to withhold your own sense of self-gratification to get your view across? How do you know how to engage in what I would call conflict management, solving problems? You've got to actually experience it to be able to do it. So I think that, you know, trying to make everything too psychologically clean is also something that would undermine a kid's resilience. And even in the early years, I don't I clearly don't want parents to be fighting in front of their kids. You know, that's just abusive and it's it's trauma inducing. Nobody wants that. But there are going to be times when we're actually saying, you know, I don't agree with you. No, you're wrong about that. Why didn't you do that? You know, getting quite irate about it. Then watch us how we sort it out. Yeah. You know, I need to learn how to do that. It's not saying I don't want my child to see the argument. It's like, well, no. don't change a child not seeing it. Change the argument. Change how that happens. Change, don't bite. When someone said something, don't bite. Maybe breathe a second <laughs> and have a different response, more yeah. constructive response. It's various. And it is all really easy to say that when we're having a lovely podcast conversation, everything's happy and it's, we're not in that moment. No. But that's what you've kind of got to change. And I think people, I've, I've talked about like an emotional range as well. So you can have someone, if you're cotton wool with them, that their emotional range isn't that great. You mm-hmm. kind of want some of those, you also want some of the highs as well. You want that really big range. And I'm going to go to a really uh, simple version of explaining things like um, the Disney film Inside Out. Mm-hmm. They're all really sad. It's all sadness's fault. But at the end, they actually realize that sadness is needed. Yeah. So some of the really... If you actually look where the sadness, there's a really happy memory right after. Absolutely. And sometimes it is those sorts of things. Is and you think I'm going to go to a funeral. So if you go to a funeral, you have that bit in the with this ceremony, and you're all thinking, hearing about their life, and you're all feeling rather sad, and you're crying. And then what happens is you go to the wake, and that's when all the funny stories seem to come out. And you go from having those really he's gone to then remembering all those amazing things that person have done. And often that actually then really lifts your spirit. But you kind of needed to get the sadness out and get rid of that to then being able to think about who, who, who am I missing? Oh, do you remember that? And you can have that happiness even in horrible situations. And it is always going to be you need some happiness, you need some sad, because you don't, it's like you only get a rainbow after it rains. Mm-hmm. One of those horrible things you see on Facebook, someone posts. Remember, you only get a rainbow after it rains. So we need the rain for that to see that beautiful rainbow. And there is some, there is, there is truth in that that you do appreciate the better days if you had bad days. Yeah, I know. My, my dad used to say, "You can't be on holiday all the time. You yeah. know, you can't, and you can't have this happy kind of experience. You know, like happy bunny stuff every single day of your life. Life is not like that. And accepting and embracing the fact that things go wrong, things are difficult." And then, as you said earlier in your intro, learning from the things that go wrong, another key element of being resilient, in my view, and being able to do that is is so important. We're not going to have that life experience. I mean, that a lot of the positive psychology movement has been berated to some extent because people say, oh, it's just too hackneyed, you know, this whole thing about all happiness. It's not about that. Positive psychology is really about living a life of meaning. 
and living a life of meaning and purpose so you make a difference in the world you do good stuff in the world is what gives us our sense of happiness and well-being and teaching kids this from a very very early age that you know that's what's important it's not about i need to be happy and the best and perfect and wonderful and living this glossy glamorous life all the time no one has a life like that and understanding that a lot of the stuff out there in the media is totally fake and manufactured and processed is one of the key routes i really right from the start saying to kids all the time do you really think that's real do you really think they really live like that don't you think that sometimes they're sad they're upset they have horrible things happen you know this is just what life is about it's not one happy kind of even keel you know situation in which you find yourself totally content all the time it's it's not on and we've we got to learn from that I mean I years ago I worked with this parent and she was so worried about her little one in reception and everyone else was kind of reading and you know, what parents are like when your kid's getting on and other kids aren't, and then you're comparing who's on which reading book in this scheme and all this nonsense. But I mean, it's, you know, it matters. It matters a lot. But then the little one's saying, oh, getting so nervous about it and getting hyperventilating and really anxious. And she's saying, oh, I can't let him feel like this. They've got to put him on a lower book. They've got to do this. They've got to do that. And I'm saying, but wait a minute. He's been assessed. They know what he can do. And actually, what we really need to teach him is how to manage the anxiety, the emotional labor of learning. Yeah. Because that is the, the process. But, you know, she said, but I want him to be happy all the time when he's learning. I said, well, he won't be. If I'm learning new things, I get anxious. I get stressed. If I'm doing anything on the computer, it's a nightmare because I always get this panic system straight ahead of me. But I have to learn how to process that. So we need to teach him how to use his calming strategies, his deep breathing, grounding, all the stuff we would use for anxiety. Problem solving. Okay, I'm looking at this book. I can't do this little bit or I can't do that activity. What do I do first, second, third? Where's my ABC, my traffic lights, my strategy or my, you know, my card that I use to go and get an extra bit of help from the teacher? Whatever it is, that's what we need to be doing. Not saying you're not going to feel like this when you're working. It's always going to be lovely. You know, anything worthwhile in terms of what we achieve entails us in undergoing some level of stress and some level of discomfort. And little ones, you need, you need to help them with that right from the start, not not when they get to doing GCSEs and they've got exam stress, right from the start. But in theory, that child's already fed off their parents' anxiety because that parent is constantly looking left and right to see how everyone else is doing in this race. Where's my child? Come on, work harder, push harder. And this child is getting this anxiety from their parent and they're knowing they're already behind because their parents made it very clear that they're not doing it good enough. And it's just as fulfilling and it is I wish we would stop looking left and right. I, I spent, I, my daughters, God, they hate me for it. Is, uh, <laughs> my daughter got detention. The most worrying thing was the hour lecture she was going to get from me. But it's, to me, it's, I'm not giving a lecture. I'm not doing the whole, how dare you've disappointed me. I'm, not, I'm actually trying to have a conversation and talk about, okay, did you have another option apart from that? Why have you, why have, and trying to find out from her, and she's not always answering, but they hate my lectures, my conversations with them. But it is, I've had conversations where I explained to them that every single person in this world has a different goal, has a different thing they enjoy. They're on a different path. They're on a different journey. So stop comparing yourself with that person because they actually just want to have two kids and do this and drive a BMW and go on a holiday to Spain and do this and have this. Do you want any of that? No. So why are you comparing yourself to that? Stop comparing, themselves, stop comparing yourself to everyone else. I mean, 
if you're listening, they're listening. Do you think it's one of the things is, do you sit there and compare yourself to that person looking to the left, to a Senko in another school? Do you compare yourself to a teacher, another teacher in your class? Do you compare yourself to another parent? We all do. And generally, all you do is you put yourself down. And I think this is that in, that, in, the, in the resilience, you've got that confidence and that social competence. And that social competence isn't about being social. It's about really reading the situation. So really reading that you're not supposed to be like Kim Kardashian. Mm. You're not supposed to be people off Love Island. Mm. You're not keeping up with the Joneses. That's to me what social competence is, is being able to fight off that peer pressure. Yeah, yeah, and that, I think that goes on right the way through into our adulthood for some of yep. us, you know, and we're, we're kind of attuned to it because of the way social media works, Instagram, etc. you know, this is, and I think it is for our generation, you know, I'm obviously older than you, but it really is significant because it has pushed this notion of comparison all the time, every day. And I'm listening to debates and arguments with parents and kids and, you know, you mustn't do this and you mustn't compare yourself to celebrity culture and it's not really like that. And they're trying to have these conversations, but then they're doing exactly the same thing themselves. And I keep saying to them, listen to your own narrative. Are you modelling this for your kid? Because you're talking about your neighbour, you're talking about how much weight you need to lose because you're going to the wedding and your cousin's going to be there and she's going to compare you and da 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 da. And it, it goes on and on and on. And and we, it's too easy to slip into it. And actually, I think it's the royal route to suffering and misery, this notion of comparison. And I, I've got to say, you know, it's like the grass is always greener. I, I always remember that from being a kid. It's not actually. And stop looking at it. Look at your own path. Look at where you're going and what you can do to be the best you can be. You can't yeah. be perfect. It's about I want to be the best I can be and I want to be the best I can be because I've got a purpose. My life's got meaning. I want to make a difference out there. And I want people to feel that it's worthwhile meeting me and knowing me and being my friend. You know, that matters more than how many likes I get on Instagram, etc. You know, it's... um. It's a tricky one, but I think it does undermine resilience because, you know, if that's all you're worrying about all the time, what other people's lives are like, how much better they are than mine, how much cleverer they are. And as you said, we feed that to our kids. I think it's so easy to say, and you don't even know you're doing it. Oh, what big, what book is so-and-so reading at the moment? Oh, that's two levels ahead of yours. Or, you know, and you think, why do you need to say that? What's the point? Or just say, you know, some people find this harder. Some people find it easier. This is something you're going to have to work at, isn't it? I had to work at this when I was at school. Couldn't do it very well. It took me a long time to learn to spell. I'm, I'm pretty dyslexic still. Okay, it doesn't matter. It's not stopped me doing anything. It just no. meant I had to work harder. And sometimes, you know, that four-letter word work is really what I'm talking about when I'm talking about resilience. You have to work at it. You have to work at yes. being resilient, sticking in there, keeping going. And that's what I value. And I, I really think we need to get our kids to value it much, much more, actually. And I think that work is, I think we are, the two things I think the world has become is very comparative, but also instant gratification. Oh, yeah, definitely. So when I wanted to play a game in the olden days on my BBC or on my Commodore 64, I had to put in a cassette and type in a command and wait for that load to load. Yeah? No. Now it is instant game. Instant game, instant gratification, instant response. You post your picture of your lunch on Facebook. Within 10 seconds, someone will probably like it. You're getting that instant, but it's all very superficial. It's not really meant 
Mm. And it is, it, it just leads down, it's, it is quite toxic. And I've, mm. I've watched um, videos where using social media releases the same chemicals in your body as sex and drugs and alcohol and other things. It releases exactly the same, yet they all have an age limit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, quite. Whereas social media doesn't really. And it is just, there's a load of stuff. And it's really hard to work out what the answer is without becoming a nanny state. Every person generally has to make their own decisions around things. And I always find it funny. I do find it really funny when someone says, I'm going to take a Facebook holiday and they put their Facebook down and they come back two weeks later and do exactly the same as they did two weeks earlier. It's like, no, you don't have a Facebook holiday. You literally look at how you're using Facebook and change. So if, if, if you're getting really fed up on Facebook, okay, what is making you fed up and unfollow, hide, remove, yeah. and make your, you, you're in charge of your feed. You've mm-hmm. chosen exactly what you're seeing. So if you're not, if it's making you sad, well, change it. Mm-hmm. Don't get rid of Facebook to make you happy because I, I get updates from my family. I get updates from friends I've not seen for ages. I love it. But then I also had, especially with COVID, lots of local groups with lots of annoying people being, I'm, the, I'm a better COVID superhero than you. Mm-hmm. And I'm better at social. So I just got rid of it all. Mm-hmm. I just got rid of all that annoying stuff and just what chose what I was, what I was seeing. Yeah. I mean, I've got this mantra about you get rid of the psychic vampires, right? The people that do you down, that exhaust you. And, and it's it's harder when you're a kid. But when you've got little ones coming back from school and saying, oh, so-and-so didn't play with me today, or she, she was horrible to me, etc. That's quite difficult to navigate because then you you get all kind of uppity and you're thinking to yourself, well, that's not nice. She, she was horrible to my little girl. I'm going to go into the school. I'm going to talk to Miss So-and-so. But actually, the next day, she comes home and they're best mates again. Yep. And then she wants her over on Friday for a sleepover. So that that kind of thing. It's quite difficult. But actually, as you progress through, you do realise and you have to realise, and this again is part of resilience, to recognise the people that do suck you dry, that do make you feel down. I've walked away from some people in my past and I've thought, why? I've been with them for an hour and a half. Why have I walked away and I feel so drained and exhausted and knackered? And I realise it's because actually, emotionally, they've just sucked me and they've talked about themselves because they're a narcissist. And you have to really eliminate these people from your life because that doesn't help your resilience. It undermines it, undermines your self-esteem, your confidence. And it's hard for kids to get their heads around that one. But I think at a very early age, it's focusing on what makes a really good friend? What makes someone really special to you? How can you do this yourself? How can you be a social animal who's kind, who's understanding, who shows compassion for others, who empathises with them? Yeah. And we can start teaching that right from the word go, I think, with our kids. I, I talk to my friends. My, when, my daughter, when you get to secondary schools, you go from having 30 classmates to a couple of hundred, however many set groups or whatever. And it explains to my daughter that there are friends and there are mates. And then there are acquaintances. And it is when you're down, who will, who will you go to? Who will come? Who may notice that you're not feeling great and come to you? They're your friends. If you're not having, they're your mates. They're, your, they're just your, you know, everything's great. We're having lots of fun. But actually, you may not be able to rely on them. So it's making, thinking about, you might be helping them, but actually, are they returning? Is it reciprocal? Mm-hmm. Are you getting as much back as you're putting in? Are you the person who's always chasing them and they never phone you back? 
do you find, as you said, you're just sitting there listening to them talk about your, themselves and you're literally listening to going, what am I getting from this? And it is, it is your learning. But the problem is at school is you can't really make a huge amount of choices because you are kind of stuck with those classmates. Yeah. And, explain, and it is the worst environment because you really are identifying who you are. Yeah. You're trying to be your own person. You're trying to be independent, but you're constantly stuck with these people and you are comparing, you're stuck, you've got to wear the right clothes, it's this. Mm-hmm. And it's just, as I say to my daughter, two, three years, when you get out of secondary school, life just changes. You can now be who you want, and that's perfectly fine. You can think what you want. You can like what you want. You will really choose your friends, and the friends you make after secondary school, to me, they're the friends you are choosing. Mm-hmm. Not the friends at school, you're friends with them because they live on the same road. Mm-hmm because their parents met a similar time and various events happened after they met, which meant you were born at the same time. That's what, that's your friendships are chosen at, at school based on a few things which are completely out of your control or you're sat next to them. And you might have some, a few things in common, but generally it's not really. And it's as you get older, you really start to choose friends based on you. Once you found out you, you found out what's important to you, your values, your interests, then you make real friends. You're choosing them. And I think it is really hard then trying to teach that to someone who hasn't got as much choice around all of that. No, and they won't have, they won't have, as you said, until they've left school. But I think actually being able to have that conversation and recognise it is really, really important because what does undermine resilience, in my view, is, is any level of real bullying, you know, and there's so much of that that goes on because of the social comparisons and other things, because of any level of difference. Anyone who's got any slight level of difference is going to have to be more resilient sadly, than anyone else. And because of that difference, whether it's physical, whether it's with their learning, whether they've got a special educational need of some sort, or they've got a certain colour hair, you know. Wrong pair of trainers. Or the wrong pair of trainers, all of that, you know, really, it it just makes a difference. But actually teaching skills of managing that managing those situations, problem solving, having those psychological frameworks for problem solving can really help kids. And okay, they don't have as much choice as us, but we can support them in that, you know, so that they are prone to less anxiety and prone to being bullied less significantly. And I think that's important. I mean, I think the bullying thing for me is one of the things that I would say nearly always, and all the kids that I work with who self-harmed, they report bullying previously or currently, yeah. either from adults or other kids. And very often it's because of a perceived difference, something that is different about them. And knowing how to manage that, and, and actually some of them shouldn't have to be managing it at all, in my view, it should be managed for them. You know, yeah. the adults need to take more responsibility. But, you know, it, that level of choice makes a difference. And in the end, I surround myself now, my age, with, and I have done for many years actually now, with people who I love, people who make me feel good. I do the same for them. We reciprocate as far as we can. Sometimes I will do a lot of support and I won't get much back because they need me at that time, but vice versa. And you yeah. know that that's the case. They're there for you. They have that sort of un- unconditional regard. They love you. And that's really what builds my resilience and helps to maintain it because it can be chipped away at just like your self-esteem can. So yeah. it's really important. Something like that. So you, you have your friends, you literally will have a few key people who know you, who understand you. And I said to my daughter that you're going to get this. You may not have it now. You may have it now. I don't know. I don't know your friends. I don't know how it works. But to me, I have a number of key people in my life who know me. I'm a bit of an oddball, but that's fine. I'm happy with that. Because I've got people who seem to like me. They call me. They email me. 
they invite me out. So I must be all right. So when someone says, oh, he's odd, or he's weird, or he's this, or he's that, I don't like it, or they don't return a call, or something doesn't go well, it can really, you sit there and go, and it might hit you, and you sit there and go, it's me. But no, that's when you go back to, well, he thinks I'm great. She thinks I'm nice. I'm married. Well, She's still with me. And yeah. it's, 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 been, it's taking that reflection and thinking about, yeah, actually, we don't all get on. And that's fine. But just because this person doesn't like me doesn't mean I have to change. No. 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 It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's really interesting when I've sat there. And there's times it's been with business or you've, you've gone and had a meeting and you've just kind of a bit of a clashed. And you're sitting there going, well, how did that happen? Why did that happen? And you, oh, did I, I should have gone in there differently. Or they might have missed, and it's, sometimes you can't do anything. It's just you do clash. There's not much you can do. But it's reflecting on that and just thinking about, actually, I don't change. I am me. Lots of people have accepted me as me. Mm. But again, not everyone has that ability. They don't always have that group of friends. No, but they also don't have the capacity to be self-accepting. And I yes. think it's about you, you've got to like yourself and, and self-esteem. There's a lot of debate around this, but I, I, I do believe that it's important to, you know, a, an aspect of resilience is that we really nurture and protect and build kids' self-esteem. But it's got to be authentic. If I've got good self-esteem, I can be resilient. I can manage when people don't like me, when we don't get on, when we do clash, when I've got a problem solve things with them. But that self-esteem needs to be nurtured authentically. So when I hear parents saying to the little ones, oh, that's a lovely piece of work. It's so beautiful. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. And the little six-year-old looks up and you can see the face and it's like, no, it's not all that really. It's not that good. I haven't really tried that. They know it's not authentic. And we think, oh, this is a love, this is a way to build self-esteem. It's not. The way to build it is to say, oh, that looks interesting. Tell me about that. Because actually I'm noticing, I'm noticing that you've done something. How could you make that even better? What could you do differently there? Could you could you improve that? What would you do? What would make it even more interesting? Because it's interesting now, but what would make it even more interesting? So I'd really latch in and want to look at it or read it, you know? And that's authentic. And then that actually is also realistic because within that you're actually being able to say, well, actually, you could improve it. I take the criticism. You can manage that. It's constructive criticism. Taking that interest. So uh, my daughter made a cake. She got, it was actually in primary school. She made some Roman cakes, which were a bit nutmeggy, scony type things. And they were lovely. And we're like, take them into school. See if your teacher likes them. She took them into school. By the end of that term, they, did, they cooked those cakes in school. And, and then she's loved baking. So it's, sometimes it's, it's talking about that piece of work, but then it's also maybe going, okay, you've done this. Well, let's take it further. Let me show you how happy I'm with it, but we can actually do some more of this. There's lots of different ways you can do things. And I think one of the other lovely Facebook quotes, and it's on T-shirts and mugs, it's always be you unless you can be a unicorn. <laughs> yeah. And you're always the best version of you. And it is, it's, if someone really is themselves, they're going to be happier. Someone who is at school, so we talk about masking. Mm. If someone's masking, we talk about special needs masking and coping, but a lot of children in secondary school and primary school are masking. They're trying to conform and fit in. They're trying mm. to be invisible. And they are masking. And they're not really being themselves. And they're doing stuff. And they don't really know who they are because they're spending their whole time pretending to like things, pretending to be this. And you go, what do you want for Christmas? don't know. So they don't really know who they are yet. And it's about helping find out who children are underneath, who they want to be. Yeah. And that's something that 
is a very big challenge and I don't know how you do that because it often it, it requires lots of different experiences and for them to actually think about which of these have I enjoyed which mm-hmm. of these do I want to do more of and if you don't have all those experiences it's hard to find that yeah but also if you don't have adults like really who are talking to you it's that level of communication the amount of time that we spend with our kids and it doesn't need to be that they're the center of our world and we're talking to them non-stop every day but actually spending the time to take the trouble to really get to know and you know if if you are if you've got those special education needs if you're on the ASD continuum for example and you do engage in masking on a daily basis what you don't need when you go go home is to have to sustain that you need to be surrounded by people who can allow you to be you and find out who you want to be. And I think sometimes we get a bit worried that kids don't know what they want. And then I think to myself, well, wait a minute, they're children. Finding your sense of self as a human being takes until well into your early 20s for some of us. And most teenagers are still doing this. So when people get worried about, oh, they don't seem to know who they are, what they want, I think, well, no, they won't. They're kids. It's all right. You know, don't beat yourself up about the fact your child doesn't know. It's fine. You know, we've got to just give them the time. And for some, it's going to take a bit longer. For some, it will take less longer. But if we nurture them in the right way and we talk to them and we actually hear what they're saying, they're more likely to get there. One thing we've talked before on the podcast about lifelong learning. Mm -hmm. So one of the things you do want to show your children is that as an adult, you are still learning. Yeah. Because if they're at school and they're learning, they come home and you're just relaxing in front of the TV, then they'll go, that's what I want to do. But if you're, as an adult, you're still learning. I'm not saying go off and do open university courses unless you want to, but often you will come across things in your life, your job. You might be doing stuff at home. You might have a hobby. And if you're learning about that and doing stuff about that, it shows your children that you are learning and you are interested and you are doing stuff. And it will, again, it will fuel their learning because you're modeling that I'm an adult and I'm learning not because I have to not because someone's telling me to because I've chosen to and that will give your children different thoughts about learning that you don't learn because you have you learn because you okay it's different and there's lots of things like that that actually will help your children think about various things in a different way about not doing things they're forced to because you want to your parents are learning so it's okay to learn and it's going back to that modeling again Yeah, I think it's about finding out what your passion is. And, you know, if you've got parents who are interested in things, who are creative or sporty, whatever they do, but they've got their hobbies, their interests, it's really become apparent during this pandemic, I think. The people that I know that have been managing most successfully are the people that have got passions. Okay, so that's why some of our ASD kids have managed really, really well at home. And for me, you know, I could sit at the computer and write all day. I can paint all day. I can. There's things that I do that I love doing and they're creative. They give me a sense of flow. I'm in the moment. I don't notice time passing much to the annoyance of my husband because I'm not available to anyone else when I'm actually in doing something like that. But it keeps me well. And I think for our children, they need right from the very early years to see that they need to find out the things that make them feel good, that they love doing, that they they enjoy doing, and really focus on creativity. You don't have to be the best at something. You don't have to play the instrument in the best way, but you can follow your passion and do it to your own best ability. And I think that's really, really important. And that takes time again. It takes patience. doesn't happen overnight. And we need to give them opportunities to engage in that sort of activity and again 
builds resilience because it reinforces my self-esteem, you know, and I'm not comparing myself to someone else. I'm working on this because I've got a passion for it, you know. And sometimes with your art, as you might share with your child, God, look how bad this one went. Exactly, exactly. And what have I learned? I failed. Oh, I went wrong. Yeah. Yeah, this is where I went wrong. And sometimes you might say, I was rushing. I wanted to get it finished, but I was tired and I should have put the paintbrush down. Absolutely. I've learned from this. But you know, that that whole thing you said earlier about, you know, resilience, you always thought you've heard lots of people say about growth mindset and how they teach that in schools. I do think I love the work of Carol Dweck. And again, people have, I mean, everyone disses everyone who's done something brilliant. Okay, we know this, right? And someone will find something wrong with it. That's fine. That's okay. I actually love it. I think I've seen it operating and working so well in so many early year settings. And it's this whole thing about teaching kids, you know, I can't do it yet. Yes. Fine. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make me a bad person. I can't do it yet, but I will get there. Might get there at a different time to someone sitting next to me or that side of me but I will get there and I think actually doing that and and really living and breathing it in the classroom with our kids and modeling it is absolutely vital and you know I'm going to make a mistake so rather than get the panic and kind of be overwhelmed with the emotion of it and catastrophize and blow it out of proportion it's like saying okay it went wrong this is not the end of the world it's not death no one's died today I keep saying that to myself when I get stressed. I always say it's not life and death. Or when I see a driver going too fast, is someone dying? Because I hope that's the only reason that you're driving at 90 miles an hour. Yeah. But it's, it's that sense of I can learn from this. Okay, it went wrong. What am I going to do differently next time? Problem solve. Calm down and problem solve with them. But there are things where if I gave you five random activities, you just happened to get them right, all five of them right, you might not have a clue why you're right. You might be lucky. It might be pure luck that you just hit the right timing or this. Whereas if actually each of those five things, the first time you tried them, you failed, mm. then you try again, you will learn from your mistakes. Yeah. Whereas if you never make a mistake, you've never learned. You get overconfident. Yeah. Yeah. And also people may see that, oh, they always get it right. So there's lots of, it's, it, as you sit there and A, A, you will make mistakes. Own up. Say to yourself, not just say to yourself, okay, that didn't go well. Yeah. You do make mistakes. You will make mistakes. Think about how that happened. Maybe uh, did you get a bit overconfident? Did you think it's all going so well? I can do this. Mm-hmm. Did you get run? Did you run away with yourself? Did you think, did you maybe rely on someone else and maybe you should have had that more? There's just so many things, but it's having that process and thinking about it mm-hmm. and moving on. Because sometimes making a mistake, people, people just, it will just, they hate it. I'm, I made a mistake yesterday and kind of um, wasted someone's time for three hours. I felt absolutely horrible. Mm. And then I've looked at it, and I've, and I've made sure that what I did, which I didn't realize I did, will never happen again. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's thinking about that. And that, to me, that's my resilience, is I had that horrible time where I felt absolutely horrible. I was gutted. I really apologized mm. constantly to that person. They seemed quite calm with it, but you never really believe it when it's your fault. And, <laughs> and I worked through and I've worked out what it was and that won't happen again. So that's how I've dealt with that. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think that, you know, it's any different for a little four, five, six-year-old. You can actually get them to see that. 
but we, you need to model it. It's, I keep yeah. coming back to it again and again. We've got to model it. And you've just told me that story. I would say that to my kids. You know, this, this is what happened to me. And it's fine. This is what I learned from it. Let's think about this now. Let's not get upset. It's not the end of the world. No one hates you for it. You're still loved. You've got this unconditional love and regard, which is at the root. Every child who's resilient will have someone behind them who provides that secure base, that, that secure attachment, who nurtures them, gives them unconditional regard, keeps them in mind. And that really is the total essential. You can do all the stuff on growth mindset, building self-esteem, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, in a nutshell, building their resilience is dependent on having a really nurturing, positive, unconditional regarding and accepting relationship with a significant adult. Sometimes it doesn't even have to be the parent, but absolutely essential, you know. And the one thing we always got to remember with our children is they are a lot of the time doing something for the very first time and we're expecting them to do it right. So you yeah. think when a child falls over, they look at you, how, what should happen? I've fallen over, there's a bit of pain or it might not be any pain, but I'm watching your face and you're looking shocked. You're running towards me. Oh dear, it was bad. I'm going to cry. So there's things like that. They always look for that. What's happened? What am I doing? And they're looking for you. So they're literally going, I'm doing this. How should I feel? And there's, there's a whole load of stuff that we've got to just make sure what our expectations of them, that we've got to, that failing is fine. Yeah. We've also got to think about how, when they're doing this, how our emotions are. Yeah. So, and uh, let's say um, you, as a child, were forced to play piano and you gave up. And what happened is now you really wish you hadn't. So you're going to get your daughter or son piano lessons as well. No, you're not. You should be getting yourself piano lessons. And then what <laughs> happens is because you want them to do it and you're going to tell them how you gave up, so they best not. And you're basically putting all this pressure and all your anxiety on them. Yeah, yeah. Now means they basically go, so you gave up, so it's that bad. Mm-hmm. So you're just filling them with all the negativity and then expect them to produce something different. Yeah. Yeah, it's not good. It doesn't help. No. So... Before we get to this podcast, you've given me some numbers which I'm going to read out because they are quite interesting. It helps you realize about this resilience, how important it is, and the opposite end like that anxiety. So one in 10 children, young people aged 5 to 16, suffer from a diagnosable mental health disorder that is around three children in every class. Mm. So it isn't like I'll see one of these in my career. Is You'll probably have three of these in your classroom right now. You will, and you probably at the moment will have more than that, because yes. there's definitely an increase, definitely. Yeah. Between one in every 12 and one in every 15 children and young people deliberately self-harm. And that self-harm for me is something I, I, I can't comprehend because of my experiences and the way I've dealt with things. But it is, it to me, from what I've learned from other people, is, is kind of, I don't, it's a, it's, I don't know how to deal with this, isn't it, kind of thing. It's oh, a, absolutely, yeah. Well, got, we're going to talk about this, aren't we, in a, in a subsequent... Another, yeah. So it is, it is. So for me, I sit there going, I don't understand this, but that means it doesn't mean it's they're just, oh, just man up. It is, there's so many, this is happening that it's a real thing. And even if you don't understand it, you've got to be able to accept that it's happening and that the feelings they are feeling are real. Yeah. And it's deep psychological pain that they're trying yeah. to manage and that's their way of doing it. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah. a trouble because we're frightened of this. We don't acknowledge yeah. it or we try and brush it under the carpet. And that is really wrong. It's so yeah. bad. Or you go, well, I've never dealt with this. I've never done this. So just, yeah, 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 you can't do that. There's been a big increase in the number of young people being admitted to hospital because of self-harm. Over the last 10 years, this figure has increased by 68%. So that is huge. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you might think, again, so there are, you talked about survival, children who survive. And 
I can I can imagine a child in various foster cares may self-harm to their life they've lived. But then you might also get children who on paper, middle-class families, parents work, professionals, everything looks rosy, mm. may self-harm. And you can't go, well, they should be grateful. No, you, you have no idea their experience, their journey, their life. Absolutely. And there might be an issue with how they perceive things, but there might be issues on how various things happen in there. There's just so much you can't really judge. You really have to be accepting. More than half of adults with mental health problems were diagnosed in childhood. Less than half were treated appropriately at the time. So what that tells me is more than half. So half, and we're talking about one in 10, with diagnosable, so there's probably double that if they're not being diagnosed till later. That's right. So yeah. It's even worse. Nearly 80,000 children and young people suffer from severe depression. Over 8,000 children aged under 10 years old suffer from severe depression. And that's when again, one of those numbers I hear that and I immediately think of children in, you're literally going to go for the deprived and that, but it isn't always. It's, oh. it's a huge range. And, it, and I see 8,010 years old and it always makes me sad that there's, they've, got, they've had that experience to feel that depressed in that time. It's, it's shocking. 72% mm-hmm. of children in care have behavioral and emotional problems. These are some of the most vulnerable people in our society. 95% of prison young offenders have a mental health disorder. Uh, many of them are struggling with more than one disorder. And on previous podcasts with Wendy Lee, we know that huge number of People with mental health conditions also have a communication interaction issue. Right. They're not able to understand how they're feeling, comprehend feeling. There's the whole, that's all hugely linked. Yeah. And it's one of the areas, and I'm not going to say it's hard to change, easy to change, but it's one of the things if we put a lot more effort into these areas, we can have a very big impact, I think. Well, that, I mean, the, the focus on resilience, you see, for me, if we get in there early enough, notwithstanding some of the home backgrounds that some of our kids come from and the difficulties and traumas that they've faced, if we're getting in there early and we're supporting them to manage their mental health better, building resilience, giving them opportunities to learn strategies from therapeutic approaches in particular, then, you know, we give it, we, we're working at a preventative level. And this yep. is what hasn't been the case. We need to put the reason I gave you those statistics is just to make the argument we need to prevent this. And we also need to see that there, there's significant numbers now, significant minority of kids, but we are going to see an increase. And if we don't start addressing this at grassroots level in schools and actually really look at our wellbeing curriculum and how it's operating, is it effective enough? then we're going to cause untold damage in the future, particularly given the, the current context. You know, and I'm not one for pathologising. I think we have to be careful here and distinguish between what is a real mental health issue and what is just normal everyday stress. Because lots of our kids are getting a bit anxious. They're getting a bit stressy at the moment, okay? And it's actually distinguishing between that and something that is a potential, really a potential disorder. So we mustn't over-medicalise, but we mustn't lose sight of the fact that actually this is an increasing problem. So the need to build resilience and protect mental health has never, ever been more important in my view. And uh, John Galloway says that in the previous one, we value what we measure we don't measure what we value and it's the whole thing of why we are chasing league tables why we are chasing grades while we're having all these battles that is what is going to drive schools and lead schools yeah 
until we start changing on that, let's get rid of those. Let's start thinking about, and there was a while, a number of years ago, there was a number of schools realized that to get increase our grades, it wasn't do more English or do more maths. It was support the children pastorally. It's recognized that these children aren't maybe, they're not thriving. They're not, there's various issues. Actually, if we support them, then we can remove those barriers. Then, And I think with all the budgets cut, which have happened over the last few years, I think that's been cut again. But we really need that more than ever. Mm. And, and that needs to be a bigger priority in school, not a bolt-on. It yeah. needs to be a much bigger priority for every school. Wow. So that's kind of the end of the podcast. I'm looking through all the keywords you've given me, and I think we have ticked everything. So there's a few things we haven't mentioned. So you've mentioned your relaxation tools, face your fears, worry, worries, moods, marbles, magic circles, mindful moments, and more. But we have touched on them. Yeah, and they are all, they are in the in the resources, essential resilience yeah. toolkit for early years. That, that all of those come in that resource. So and all the stuff I've talked about in terms of growth mindset, self esteem, confidence building, that is all in that resource. So it's it's really comprehensive. So links to all those uh, resources and where you can find them are will be in the show notes. So I'll make sure they are there. So big thank you, Tina, for today. Thank you very much. Thanks for asking me again. No, it's been great. Really enjoyed it. I, w- I always love these things because it really, I reflect on it as a, as a child and my parents. I reflect on it as me as a parent. I reflect on being in schools as the chair of governors and going on school trips and interacting with all these different children. And it really helps me think, especially about anxiety and resilience, is looking at those different children. I know you kind of, you know the families and you're literally going, well, they're lovely and they're lovely and they're lovely. Why, 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 is it, why is she so anxious? And, and it, just understanding that you will never be able to point out that will be the anxious child, that will be the resilient child. There's so many things you just don't know has so many effects. Yeah. And I've just learned that very much accept people how they are. Everyone's different. And there are lots of amazing people. And a previous podcast with Fintan O'Regan is, was all about confirmation, conforming or celebrating uh, neurodiversity. Yeah, or please, let's just do that. Let's do that. <laughs> be much happier place, much more compassionate. <laughs> oh, it'd be much more interesting, much more interesting world, much more changing. And yeah, so lots of things like that. So yeah, really enjoyed this conversation. Really do enjoy these. I could go on for hours, but we've already hit an hour. So uh, I best not. So um, yeah, all everything we've mentioned will be in the show notes and Dr. Tina Ray's contact details. You'll also find the show notes on the website, www.thesendcast.com. So as always, big thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, you can subscribe by going to our website, www.thesendcast.com. You can also sign up to our newsletter to keep up to date with the latest news. Alternatively, you can follow us on Twitter at The Sendcast, on Facebook, The Sendcast, on Instagram, The Sendcast, LinkedIn, just search for The Sendcast. You can find us on all the different, if you've listened to the website, you can find us on all the different podcasting stations. We're now available on Amazon Alexa now. Thank Ooh, you, Amazon. Very nice. That's really interesting. You can listen to me everywhere. And if you want to get in touch, let me know your thoughts, suggest topics or anything else, please send an email to hello at thesendcast.com. And as I always say, if you've enjoyed the Sendcast, why not look into the virtual Send conference? As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, this is a conference that, like the, like the Sendcast, is run by us here at B Squared. It covers all aspects of special educational needs and disability, not what B Squared do. It's all about the whole big picture, like this podcast. 
And what makes the conference different is its access to cross the internet. So you do not need to go anywhere. You can access it from home or in school or anywhere. The conference runs twice a year in March and November, and each conference has 12 highly valuable sessions designed to help you with each session having something you can take away and implement in your school. So I don't want wishy-washy things where we talk about how wonderful it could be. I literally want to make a difference in every single school. You can buy tickets for future events or past events. The videos are always available. And the cost for each conference is £60, and this covers the entire school, not per person. As an listener of Sendcast, we're offering you a 10% discount just by using the code Sendcast10, no spaces. And for more information on the Virtual Send Conference, go to www.virtualsendconference.com. If you are a parent, we have launched Parent Talks, which is following the same sort of approach, so online conference, but instead of doing it as a conference, it's just a series of online talks, all aimed at supporting parents of children with special education needs and disability, parents of children with and it's all about helping you in a variety of ways. The cost for parent talks is £10 per family, and you get all 12 sessions, which you can watch as much or as little as you want. Introduction from David and Carrie Grant. So, uh, and for more information on that, go to www.virtualsendconference.com forward slash parent talks. So, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye.